Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. You do find it offensive as a Jewish American, as I am, when they compare Trump to Hitler and Nazis. Oh, and what, isn't that ridiculous? Let me tell you, there's, there's a guy on Martha's Vineyard who's comparing me <laughs> to those who put Hitler in power. He actually wrote a letter to a bunch of people saying that I was complicit with Trump in the same way that um, intellectuals in Germany were complicit with Hitler and that I was kind of responsible. I mean, the, the failure Crazy. to understand the difference between defending somebody's civil liberties and being complicit right. is, is outrageous. I wasn't complicit in O.J. Simpson's uh, alleged murders. I wasn't complicit in my other clients. I wasn't when I defended the rights of Nazis to march in Skokie. I didn't become a Nazi. When I defended the rights of pornographers, I didn't become a pornographer. I'm not complicit. I'm a lawyer. I'm somebody who speaks up on behalf of civil liberties. But people do make that analogy, and it's a horrible analogy because it's a form of Holocaust denial. Yes, if but it's not just a... Trump's like Hitler. What you're saying is that the Jews of Germany and the Jews of Poland didn't suffer any more than we're suffering right. now, right. and that there were no gas chambers, and that there were no death camps. You cannot make comparisons. Or, or that today, or they're not. saying today there are gas chambers and there are railway cars taking them to concentration camps, and that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ludicrous. You yeah. may disagree with this policy on the border, but nobody's taking them to concentration camps. We're treating them pretty darn good, if you ask me. So, you know, well, nobody you know, treats kids like better. So that's Wayne Allen Root uh, on Newsmax, and he's speaking with uh, Alan Dershowitz, who's a uh, he's a professor. He's an expert, a, a legal expert, an attorney, et cetera, et cetera. And what they're talking about is the fact that they're both of Jewish, you know, ethnicity, and they really take offense to this idea that Donald Trump is being compared to Hitler. And I, I, I do too, because remember, it's not just Donald Trump they're comparing to Hitler. They're also com- they're saying anyone who supports Donald Trump is also like Hitler. And the the comparison is so spurious and so absolutely offensive that it's hard to really it's hard to push back on it more effectively than they just did. I'll just put it that way. Um, so welcome back to the program, Stacy Washington, host of Stacy on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Uh, thanks for being here today. Take the poll question over at Urban Family Talk. Also register for our Marriage and Family Conference. That's August seventeenth and eighteenth. You can do that right there on the website. Uh, so we're listening to Alan Dershowitz talk about that. And I, honestly, it just, that's it. That's, that's so perfectly and aptly analyzed that we don't need to go any further. And I just encourage you to push back gently with a spirit of love and conciliation when you hear people saying he's like Hitler. Now, here's, here's the, here's the uh, it's like a little bit of a, a warning that goes with that. I encourage you to push back. You do so kindly and with with care, but understand that someone who's making a comparison of the president to Hitler is probably so deep in their feelings that even the nicest rebuttal to that is going to earn you. You know, you get you might get put on ice for a little bit. They don't speak to you. Um, I I actually pushed back on someone here in St. Louis, and they've not had me back on their show again since then. So I it it, it the truth comes with sacrifices, but suffice it to say, I believe the Lord blesses us when. Uh, we we tell the truth and we get a little pushback here in in the earthly realm. He blesses us elsewhere, and and I really I believe that the truth is worth the consequences. So please just remember that these things are being said by people who are in their feelings. But when falsities are allowed to stand, then we end up with a situation where the truth doesn't 
have as much meaning. And remember, a lie can travel around the globe six times before the truth gets its shoes on. So we have to be there to try to stop this continual, it's a demonization. And I don't mean demonization like, oh, he's demonizing him. You know, like sometimes we use that term casually. I mean, it's, it's utterly demonic to compare a man who just got elected to the presidency, a flawed individual for sure. President Trump has flaws, as we all do. But uh, Hitler? Hitler is one of the worst human beings ever to live as far as the things that he did and was able to convince other people to participate in the evil, the depths of depravity that he foisted upon an entire nation. Come on, the comparison doesn't work. So I just push back on it. You can do it. Do it kindly with the spirit of of conciliation and then, you know, leave it there. Uh, So right now I want to pivot over to Lisa Page refusing to testify before Congress. Now, if we were at a speaking engagement and you were in the audience, I would say, raise your hand if you have the spine, the steel in your spine to defy a congressional subpoena. And I don't think anybody would raise their hand because most of us understand that that would mean putting ourselves in legal jeopardy, really. But Lisa Page doesn't seem to have the same problem. And Newt Gingrich went on to the Hannity show to talk about it a little bit. It's number seven. Well, I mean, who who knows what the deal is here? Uh, Increasingly, these guys sound like the old mafia bosses uh, who used to show up for the Kefauver hearings many, many years ago uh, in the early days of television. And they would sit there and they would plead the fifth. And for the country at large, it was a huge spectacle. And it kind of gave you the signals who's guilty. Um, You're discovering that at the very senior levels of the FBI, and I believe of the Justice Department under Obama, you had a level of corruption that makes it uh, very dangerous for them to show up uh, and to actually testify. And so I think their lawyers legitimately under our system are saying to them, to protect yourself, you cannot go under oath and start talking about this stuff or you're going to cre- either going to reveal information that will put you in jail or you're going to end up committing perjury. And so I think you're seeing a real uh, example. I mean, it sounds to me like if they didn't have a whole lot to hide, they wouldn't be hiding. And what we're seeing is people who I think have a lot to hide. They do. Um, and so if we were making these statements based on conjecture or what other talking heads on radio were saying about Lisa Page and Peter Strzok, then that would be unacceptable. And I would not engage in that. I would not participate in that. But this isn't conjecture. This is based upon the text messages that have been released to the public and, and information that they really tried to hide from the American people. But our congressional leadership has been really great about, you know, doggedly requiring that they give this information out for public consumption. These are employees of the federal government. And while their work may be classified, their communications are not. And any person who's elected or who works for the federal government is subject to records, maintenance laws, and also Freedom of Information Act requests. And so anything that's not classified, anything that goes to national security that isn't uh, something that is walled off for national security reasons, we have a right to see it. These people are paid literally. You're at work right now listening to this show the percentage of tax dollars that are coming out of your paycheck, because you don't get to see that money, do you? Do they let it hit your account and then ask you to write them a check for it? Nah, it gets sacked up. It, it comes out first. It, they get their money first. They get it first. So they're taking that money and they're paying people like Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. And these people don't want to be held accountable. 
They understand they're in legal jeopardy. They understand the mood in the country is not completely positive towards them based on what we've read. And they don't want to be called to account for what they've done. So they're going to defy this congressional uh, subpoena. She's requiring that they not only provide her with the source documents that they want to ask her about, but they she wants time to review them, meaning she wants a team of lawyers to sit down and comb over every single thing that they're providing. And then once the, the lawyers have combed over it, the lawyers want to then go through and create questions and answers. So they may ask you this based on page three, paragraph four, you know, and your answer would be, this. And so that takes a long time. Lawyers don't just, you know, make stuff up out of thin air. They're going to read over the documents and make their own notes, then bring her in and depose her about the notes and take more notes. And then they're going to ask her about certain things in there that maybe she contradicts herself or maybe she's doing things in there that they know, wow, this is clearly outside of her, the scope of your work. What, what can you, what can you tell me about why you did this? What was your thought process here? Let's talk about how we can explain this because this doesn't look so good for you. You know, don't tell me anything that incriminates yourself. I mean, this is a lengthy process. And so what they're saying is we're not going to expose our client to any more jeopardy than she's already exposed herself to in texting these clearly not okay, not safe for work things on her government device. So we already know she's she's ensnared. She's entrapped herself. She's she's a foul of the law, but we're not going to send her off the deep end just so you can talk to her in front of a camera. We're going to we're going to risk the legal jeopardy of defying the subpoena because it is less than what she faces if she comes before you and perjures herself. That's what's going on here. I mean, it, I it's so stunning. It's so amazing that this is what is going on and that it's what we understand. Wouldn't it be something if we were talking about this and we weren't so sure that she sent the text messages or that we didn't have the text messages? Well, that would put us in the same position as everyone who's calling Donald Trump a Russian agent because they got nothing to support that, nothing but conjecture. But we actually have facts in evidence, which are the text messages and the actions and behaviors that they took while they were on on the job. It's I mean, it's just stunning. So Newt Gingrich is still on the show. And this is a quick little hit here. He's talking about what he calls a coup d'etat and how profoundly wrong it is that they that they did these things. It's number eight. I think you're faced with what is increasingly obvious as a bureaucratic coup d'etat, where they literally were trying to prop up Secretary Clinton, no matter how guilty she was, and they're trying to find some device to block uh, Donald Trump, uh, no matter how innocent he was. Uh, and I think this is, I mean, if you want to see evidence that there is a deep state, all you have to do is follow this couple all of their various tweets and text messages, I mean, I meant text messages, and you begin to realize um, there's something profoundly wrong going on. And, and, and I think that's what we're really, I think there's a, like a collective, um, all of us are collectively, it's like when you watch one of those YouTube videos from, or, or, or a video from Live Leak, and it's a car wreck, or, or have you guys ever seen that, uh, have, have you ever seen the compilation video of people in foreign countries having these really bizarre car accidents? I remember when, when I spent more time on Facebook, uh, it was a video that would sometimes get posted. And when you watch it, so it's on your laptop, let's say, so, you know, not a huge screen. 
But as you watch it, because the cameras seem to be mounted to the dashboard and some of the accidents are so improbable. It's like there's one that's called near misses where people are walking across the street in these foreign countries and all the cars are going in different directions like a Keystone Cops movie. And the people who are walking across the street narrowly miss getting hit by multiple trucks and cars and they just keep on strolling. It's like it's it looks choreographed. It's so crazy. But it's the way that people drive in, in you know, certain foreign countries. You watch these videos and. I, I have actually, you know, you sit there, you got your little coffee or whatever, and you're watching the videos and you're by yourself. There's no one around and you're watching it. And by the end of the video, you realize you've been sitting there watching it with your lip hanging open because you're just you're just flabbergasted. You're just like, I can't I can't even believe I'm seeing this. That is the kind of feeling that I have in ob- observing what is going on with James Comey. Lisa Page, Peter Strzok, James Clapper. Andrew McCabe, all of it, Uh, even Hillary Clinton. Like I just, I'm watching it because I just, first of all, one thing we all know is that chick over here with the permanent tan would not be defying the congressional subpoena, would not have gotten away with sending 10,000 text messages and got to just get escorted off the job. No, you know, no bigs, you know, just go home and keep collecting my pay and be on administrative leave. Finally decide I'm going to resign and take some like modified early retirement. That's not happening over here, right? It's happening over there and it's not happening in secret. This is not going on irrespective of anybody knowing about it. You, you don't just have people like us knowing about it. You and me, we, you've got people in Congress who know about it. The president knows about it. The former president knew about it. Hillary Clinton was running for president. She knew about it. Everyone is aware this is going on and we're all just sitting there watching it like the people getting the near misses. These people are Teflon. They're literally untouchable. This is what the founders were talking about. And if you haven't read this book, you got to read this book. It's called The 5,000 Year Leap, A Miracle That Changed the World. Amazon classifies it as fiction because it is an accurate historical look at how our founders came to give us a republic if we could keep it. And in here, it goes all the way back to Socrates and the, the great philosophers from Greek uh, the, the, from from Greece and, and that era. And they it talks about where our natural rights come from. And it talks about no man being above the law and justice being blind and all of us receiving equal treatment under the law and what a radical concept that is. And, and so if you've read this book, you can't help but have your mouth hanging open as you watch people literally walk through the law with no ramifications. They just step right over it and keep going. That's what Lisa Page is doing. That's what Peter Strzok is doing. James Comey, et cetera, et cetera. Hillary Clinton. How can this be? The founders would literally already have their muskets up. They'd be loading and pouring bullets into, into, into bullet molds. That's what they'd be doing. But here we are. All right. We'll be back with um, our next guest, Justin Walker. He'll be with us right after this. Here's some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for a healthcare plan, or more importantly, if you signed up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare. MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have hundreds of thousands of members all across the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2.5 billion of each other's medical bills. Best of all, 
You could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is about 500 bucks a month. Your savings may be less or more, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. Here's the number to find out more. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. Just hit star star 345. That's star star 345. Star Star 345. Hello, I'm Pastor Joseph Parker, and this is Daily Time in the Word. It's our goal to help you better understand the great blessing of spending time in God's Word every single day. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. For best results, follow the instructions of the manufacturer. These are the words we often find in the instruction manual that comes with an item that you buy from the store. That's true because usually the one who made the item or appliance knows better than others how to put it together and how it would function or operate most correctly and properly. God, our Heavenly Father, is the manufacturer, the maker and the sustainer of all life and all people. He created the whole world and all the people in it. As both the creator and sustainer of life, he created everything and everyone. He knows how we were created to work best and most productively. The reading of God's Word daily, again, is an important habit because it empowers us, guides us, and strengthens us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, who is the creator of the universe, he's given us an instruction manual called the Bible, the Word of God. As we read it and listen to it and obey it, we'll find success, blessing, and encouragement in life. Let's consider a few reasons why every believer should make it a high priority to spend time in God's Word every single day. Number one, it tells you genuinely how to be saved and grow up in your faith. Number two, it gives clear guidance and direction for much of your life. Number three, it empowers your prayer life. Number four, it sharpens your ability to hear the Holy Spirit more clearly in your life. Number five, it ministers to your mind, body, and spirit. Number six, it helps you maintain your mental health. Number seven, it increases the anointing on every part of your life. Number eight, it increases your wisdom in every part of life. Nine, it enhances your intellect and personality. Ten, it pours grace, peace, and mercy into your spirit, mind, and life. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being with us today. It's um, it's Wednesday. We're just moving on through this week, right? <laughs> I personally am so glad it's Wednesday. My Monday and Tuesday were so, I mean, it was it was a hard slog to get through those. And now it's the middle of the week. And so it's like, you know, nice to be on the downswing and also to be here live on the radio. We've got our cameras working again, so we're streaming everywhere. And thanks to everyone who's watching and listening to the show on all of the different mechanisms by which you can get the program, head over to StacyOnTheRight.com and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss anything. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Justin Walker. He was a law clerk for Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who is the new uh, Supreme Court nominee, the choice of President Donald Trump for a replacement for Anthony Kennedy. Um, Justin Walker clerked from 2010 to 2011 and is an expert on law and politics who provides commentary all over uh, on cable news and radio all over the country. Justin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you because I'm, I'm interested in your insights on what kind of person um, Judge Kavanaugh is. And I actually enjoyed his 
portion of the announcement at, from the White House on Monday evening where he talked about the history of, in his family, only child. He made a joke about, you know, what's it like to be an only child depends on who your parents are. And then he launched into this historical view of his mom being a teacher in inner city schools and then deciding to become a lawyer, going to law school and then going on to become a judge herself. Um, what was he really like? Well, Judge Kavanaugh is just an incredibly kind and incredibly civil person. He served with 17 other judges of all ideological persuasions. They all consider him a friend. He's also had clerks of all ideological persuasions. Um, his, you know, I, I, I left uh, Judge Kavanaugh's chambers to go clerk for Justice Kennedy, but other of his clerks have clerked for Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas on the right, and then also Justice Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan on the left. So I think it, it reflects that a lot of people like Judge Kavanaugh, even when they disagree with him. And, and it's understandable because, you know, he is a devoted father. Um, he's a, a servant, not just in his public service career, but, you know, he serves meals to the hungry through Catholic charities and he tutors uh, underprivileged children. He coaches his little girl's basketball team. He's just a very humble, thoughtful, down-to-earth person um, who uh, was a lot of fun to work for. So let's talk a little bit about um, the, because you, you mentioned that there were, so you've also clerked for Justice Kennedy, who was the swing vote. He was obviously put onto the court by a Republican. He is a Republican himself, but during his tenure on the court, he often swung depending on what his views were on a particular case and was able to move the country to the left socially through a number of Supreme Court rulings that right-wingers like myself are not, you know, we're not as appreciative when he swung in that direction. Do you feel like Judge Kavanaugh is an appropriate replacement for him, as as liberals have called, they want someone who would be the next swing voter. Do you think that Kavanaugh would fill that that slot? Oh, I think Judge Kavanaugh is going to be a great uh, successor, and I think people are going to find that in some ways he he's different than Justice Kennedy, uh, and in some ways he's similar. So I can talk about both of those things uh, on the on the differences front. I think Judge Kavanaugh probably identifies a little bit more as a textualist, maybe a formalist, in terms of um, his approach to the law. Justice Kennedy might identify a little bit more as what he would call uh, maybe a pragmatist. Mm. But then in terms of similarities, you know, I think the kind of civility I was talking about, uh, Justice Kennedy also certainly has. You know, he's the kind of person who gets along with all of his colleagues and, um, you know, has earned all of their, all their respect. Uh, never has an unkind word for uh, for anyone, really. And kind of gives even his opponents, uh, at least in terms of their motives, uh, the benefit of the doubt. So that that's interesting because I think, and so for me, I kind of wanted Amy Coney Barrett, not and nothing against Judge Kavanaugh. I I really wasn't as familiar with him until like the very last minute when I realized he was in the running and Amy Coney Barrett was kind of out of the running. Um, and then, so since then, I've read a lot about his opinions, and I found some places where I disagree, but that's going to happen with any justice, any any prospective justice on the court, I'm going to find something that I'm like, oh, I can't believe he, you know, he thought that was right. That's the nature of, you know, these people being human beings and having their own ideas. 
But as far as like Axios has this big, uh, it, it's a graphic that they do where they have a baseline of zero and anything below or to the left of that is a person leaning towards the left side of the political spectrum. Anything to the right or above it would be someone who's a conservative or Republican leaning person. And they put Judge Kavanaugh up above Justice Roberts. Um, they have him right underneath Clarence Thomas, who is the most conservative justice on the court. Do you think that's accurate? You know, there, there are studies out there. Um, you know, for example, there was a study that um, tried to do some statistical analysis of all the judges in the past 80 years, all the Supreme Court justices. Uh, and you know, what they found is that uh, Justices Alito, Thomas, uh, Scalia um, are, and I guess, um, what is it then? Just yes, we're and and Roberts even were um, considered four statistically four of the five most conservative justices of the past eighty years. And so wow. then they looked at Justice Kennedy, and it would I think maybe surprise some people because as you pointed out, he certainly joined with the liberal colleagues on some very important and very controversial issues. Uh, but Justice Kennedy was actually in, around. He was the tenth most conservative justice of the past uh, eighty years. And so I think when we're trying to figure out, well, you know, what kind of justice will, will Judge Kavanaugh be like, I think it's, it's important to remember that the justice he's replacing um, was really one of the more conservative justices um, in quite a long time. Not to say that he was um, as conservative a justice uh, as uh, some of the more conservative colleagues that are on the bench. So, you know, I think... It's difficult. I think it's risky to make a prediction on where Judge Kavanaugh is going to fit on some uh, spectrum like that. And I also think, to some degree, the job of judging is does not lend itself to a, a kind of a ideological scorecard the way that you know I understand like the NRA scores um, and and groups in the left do the same thing. They score members of Congress. Okay, here's mm-hmm. all of your votes, and then you get a you get a 35 percent rating, and you get an 87 percent rating. I I don't think that that judging is supposed to be political. And so I think the only prediction we can we can make with certainty about Judge Kavanaugh is that he will take very seriously the proper limits of, of a judicial law. Uh, the limits are you don't invent law. You try to look at the text of the law, its history and its structure, its precedents, and you try to apply the law that other people have created. Uh, so I, I think that's the kind of judge we can expect. I actually... I, I tend to agree with you that it is very difficult to predict how judges are going to behave um, once they're on the bench because we don't know what cases they're going to hear. And so and we also don't know the mood of the country and things that happen in the country that kind of impact what is acceptable to Americans and what isn't. Um, my next question has to do with. So the er, people have been talking about stare decisis, you know, this this idea that precedent is really important and that a person who respects that a justice who uses that as one of their deciding factors would say precedent was set with this case. And so we kind of go with that. But we also have a Supreme Court that at one point said black people weren't human beings, you know, ruled on the the wrong side of segregation. You know, there have been many times that the Supreme Court has been wrong. And I don't mean slightly wrong. I mean, technically, totally wrong. And they've had to reverse <laughs> themselves, right? They're human beings. They're going to, these things are going to happen. So when, individuals on the left or the right come down and say, well, using stare decisis and, and the, the idea that precedent is important, 
Roe v. Wade is established law and it cannot be overturned, it's kind of like they're unaware of the other times that the Supreme Court of the United States was wrong. So whether or not we believe that Roe v. Wade is right or wrong, we can all agree, I suppose, I guess my question to you is that the Supreme Court has been wrong before and could reverse itself on almost anything. Stacey, the Supreme Court has definitely been wrong before. You pointed out uh, Dred Scott decision just before the uh, Civil War, Plessy v. Ferguson, which allowed for Jim Crow segregation, separate doctrine of separate but equal. Um, and so then thank goodness that a president like Brown v. Board of Education came along in the 1950s and overturned the precedent of Plessy v. Ferguson. Um, there, there are certainly going to be times when a judicial precedent should be overturned. I, I think that you know, most justices on the Supreme Court, most judges around the country, think that precedents should only be overturned in extraordinary circumstances. And if you're looking to try to figure out what Judge Kavanaugh thinks about this question of precedents, he actually helped write an entire book about it. It's not for the faint of heart. It's, <laughs> I, it's a thousand-page long treatise on judicial precedents. He co-wrote it with 12 other distinguished judges, and I can't claim that I've read every word of all a thousand pages, but um, I did give it a pretty careful look. And what Judge Kavanaugh says is that following established precedents has some virtues. It keeps the law settled. It furthers the rule of law. It predicts, promotes consistency and, and, uh, and predictability. Now, as you pointed out, uh, under extraordinary circumstances, uh, precedents should be overturned. It has to be a reason more than just I don't like that old decision. So mm-hmm. he says in the book, you know, a simple change in personnel on the court um, shouldn't throw all former decisions open to reconsideration. But he and I think every, every judge in the country uh, would say that, you know, if a decision was wrongly decided in the past and if there are special factors that are uh, counseling in favor of overturning it and if the situation is extraordinary, uh, then in some cases – you know, plus E.D. Ferguson comes to mind, uh, certainly have to be overturned. Well, I think, uh, well, first of all, thank you for mentioning the book. I think that's actually going to come up in the Senate confirmation hearings. <laughs> I think the, the book, the contents of the book, um, his opinions on this are going to be the subject of many questions, and he's going to be able to answer them very well, it appears. He's very well prepared to handle that line of questioning based on the fact that he's written a book about this. Um, I think we can all argue about whether or not there's been as material or substantial change in uh, information or, it, you know, enough to warrant overturning Roe v. Wade. I think the scientific, uh, you know, amount of information we have about fetuses and contraception and, and different things that weren't as clear in the 70s, but are much more clear now and the science is much more definitive now would, in my opinion, warrant that. But I'm not on the Supreme Court and I'm not going to be bringing any cases before the Supreme Court. So I guess we'll see what happens. I just I think it's a concern for me. That makes two of us. That makes yeah. true of a Stacey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, what I, so I watched a few of your um, your media hits from before to kind of prepare for today, and I, I was thinking to myself, you know, he's you, you're so measured in what you say, but you also go back to the historical facts of of you know what Judge Kavanaugh has actually written and opinions and things like that, and so I. I, I'm I'm kind of locked up with you on the idea that it can't just be hey, it's a bunch of new people on the court. You know, Trump has appointed new people, therefore, anything we don't like gets reversed. 
But by the same token, I really am interested to see how Judge Kavanaugh is going to handle the questions about this because so there's some people on on the left side of the aisle who have sensed this announcement kind of unmasked themselves as being completely opposed to him no matter what he says. Like he hasn't even had a chance to really weigh in yet and they're already against him. And I'm looking forward to him putting forward a good showing just not not because he's going to be confirmed or he's not. I don't know the future, but just because he seems like he's pretty well prepared for this particular set of questions. <laughs> you know, Stacey, you're, you're so right. There was actually um, some kind of a press release or, or elite talking points from one yes, of the groups the that women's march. <laughs> uh, came out immediately against him. Yeah. <laughs> Are you thinking the same thing I am, where it says, yeah. uh, you know, Judge XX, fill yeah. in the blank, and then it listed all these terrible things about the, the judge uh, without even knowing who the judge was. It was clearly written before uh, President Trump announced that the, just, the nominee would be Judge Kavanaugh. So, um, you know, there are going to be some people out there who don't have an open mind. Uh, I, I, you know, that, that's unavoidable. I think, though, I'm hopeful that there are going to be some people out there, a lot of people out there uh, inside the Senate and outside it, uh, who, who do come to this question with an open mind and who are trying to find out, you know, what kind of judge is Brett Kavanaugh and also what kind of person is he? And I think they're just going to be blown away. I think that I think they're going to, when they learn that he spent 12 years and wrote 300 opinions on the second most important court in the country, when they learn that the Supreme Court has endorsed his positions 13 different times, which is an unparalleled record of vindication by the Supreme Court, when they hear about his credentials and his approach to the law and his independence, and then also his personal character as a husband and a dad and a church member uh, and a mentor to clerks like me, uh, I, I think they're really going to like the guy. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the questions and his responses. He seems like just, just observing him from the short speech that he's already given, like he's a really almost happy-go-lucky soul who you know can handle the tough questions without getting flustered. And that is actually triggers most people when they're trying to get you to respond and you just, you know, stay within your own zone and you're, you're able to answer questions that drives them nuts. And I'll be ready, not with popcorn, but maybe with some sushi and a bottle of uh, smart water. I'll be watching with, you know, gleefully as <laughs> if, if that's his approach, I'm going to really enjoy it. Um, so we're, we're at the end of the segment and I just want to say thanks so much for taking the time out to come on the show. I know you're really super busy, um, you know, going on programs and answering these questions, but great to have your analysis and thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, sure. Hope to talk to you again soon. That's Justin Walker. He was Judge Brett Kavanaugh's law clerk from 2010 to 2011, national uh, commentator and analyst for uh, legal issues and an attorney himself. It's great to have him on the program, and it's great to have you. Thank you for listening. We have one more segment, and we'll take your calls if you'd like. You can call us at 866-963-2037. Weigh in on anything we've discussed so far. We will be diving into um, a little bit of the border asylum stuff. So keep it here.
This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Turn on the news any time of day and stories of victimization flow. Every demographic group, every segment of society is a victim. Instead of seeing ourselves as righteous and forgiven, made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we believe the noise and accept a victim's mentality. Victims cannot accomplish goals or persevere through life's trials and tribulations. The New Testament is replete with verses about who we are in Christ. Guess what? You are not a victim. You are a victorious child of God. You are a branch of the true vine and a conduit of Christ's life. Jesus calls you friend. You are justified and redeemed. You are free from condemnation and set free from the law of sin and death. You are God's workmanship, created to produce good works. You are accepted, redeemed, and you can do all things through Christ, who is our strength. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Listen to Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on Urban Family Talk. She's sharp. I mean, did you hear that? Pointed. Remember that you're not only a Christian on Sunday. And insightful. Deception and lies have been accepted as the norm from the Democrats. But most of all, she's on the right. That scripture from the Bible that says the heart of the fool inclines to the left just kept popping into my mind. Stacy on the Right. Now heard weekday afternoons from 2 to 4 Central on Urban Family Talk. Just as David's mighty man, Benaiah, chased down a lion into a pit on a snowy day. Lion chasers, champions, uncommon men and women of faith who are unafraid to stand up and speak truth to power in these dark and evil days. Never before has there been such a need for people of faith to draw a line in the sand with a sword of truth. Lion chasers, the intersection of faith and public policy with Lonnie Poindexter. Weekday mornings at 10 Central on Urban Family Talk. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet, they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. You know, I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with 8 Days of Hope. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. For me, I find it so irritating. I, I have covered wall to wall the confirmation hearings in D.C. of Chief Justice John Roberts, of Samuel Alito, of Elena Kagan, of Sotomayor. Uh, I've looked at this going back in history. Scalia was confirmed by a vote of 98 to, to nothing. The two people were missing that day. Scalia, who was obviously hard right. Elena Kagan, uh, Sotomayor, confirmed with high 60s votes, right, in the high 60s in the Senate, 67 for one, 63 for the other. The, the Democrats lost this fight on November 8th, 2016. The only question now is whether Brett Kavanaugh is qualified to take this office or is so radical that no reasonable person would put him on the Supreme Court. Trump deserves his his choice, just like Obama deserved his choices. Sotomayor belongs on that bench. So does Kagan. So does Kavanaugh. Whoa. 
<laughs> so that feisty little contribution was from Megan Kelly over on her show um, today. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was interesting that she was so vehemently supportive of the idea that all of these different ideological perspectives are welcome and desirable and needed on the Supreme Court. I tend to be much more dogmatic. I feel like we should have as many hard right Supreme Court justices as we can because they tend to stick with the rule and and it's it's the the text of the constitution. And for people who constantly point out to me because I've I've had this pointed out, oh well you're black, if that's the case then we'd still have slavery. No, no we wouldn't. Slavery being a part of the beginning of this country was a compromise that had to be made in order to form the imperfect union. The founders knew that this would be an issue that would have to be taken care of at some later point, but they needed an actual constitution, an actual country in order to get to that point. And, you know, it's not an issue of me not understanding the horrors of slavery. I'm descended from slaves. It's not that I can't get my mind wrapped around what it took for the founders who some of them were slave owners themselves to make that compromise? Absolutely not. So you can't get away with that because people are nuanced. Historical situations are nuanced. There's more to it than just cut and dried. They thought black people were three-fifths of a person. Nope. No, not at all. The reason I can have this viewpoint is because I've read the history on it and I understand what was going on at the time. And that's something you have to be able to do. We have to be able to detach ourselves from our emotions and the pain of not just slavery itself and the experiences of relatives and people who've gone on before who are related to me, who experienced the slavery or who experienced the Jim Crow South or who experienced, you know, the time after that. Look, a lot of Americans, most Americans have some complicated, difficult history as it pertains to how their family came to be American. That is the human existence. The bigger deal is whether or not you appreciate where you are right now, which is if you are in this country legally and you're a citizen, do you appreciate the constitutional protections that enshrine your liberties into a document that is in itself inviolable unless we allow elected officials and lawyers and judges and people who get to, you know, make law unless we allow them to violate it. And those are the questions. Those are the things that we face with this. So, you know, um, I I thought that was an interesting clip that she pointed out that all of those justices had a right to be there because they were appointed by duly elected presidents. and, And it is the purview of the president of the United States to appoint justices to the Supreme Court. Fantastic perspective, if you will. Um, I don't obviously always agree with Megyn Kelly, but I thought that was interesting. So now I want to pivot over really quickly because the topic has been so enmeshed in the idea that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. And I, I do, part of me wants to just get so excited because in my mind, I could see Justice Kavanaugh being confirmed to the Supreme Court and then making that choice. But then a part of me sees him being affirmed to that court and, and confirmed to that court and then saying, no, it's, it's settled law. We're not going to reverse it. I'm not going to vote to reverse it. I could see both of those scenarios happening. Rather than getting mired down in which of those will happen, I'd rather talk about the, the, 
Star Parker has a piece out today where she calls abortion the symptom. And I want to talk about the symptoms. The symptoms being that Jason Riley has a piece up at the Wall Street Journal where he talks about the abortion rate. And this information is so depressing. Thank God we put our hope in, in, in him because if we're putting our hope in men, it's a, it's a losing proposition. So you've got the Pew Research Center survey taken last year found that 50% of Hispanics, 58% of whites, and 62% of blacks now say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. And that's a depressing statistic. Now, social scientists aren't sure why black attitudes towards abortion have changed, but one theory is that more blacks migrated out of the conservative Deep South and settled in other regions of the country, and they have more liberal views on reproductive rights, and so their attitudes changed when they moved to these more liberal areas. Another possibility is that people with higher incomes and more education tend to be pro-abortion. Since the early 70s, the socioeconomic status of blacks has increased exponentially. But... If you want to look at what has been the true impact of it, get, to get outside of the ideas and what people believe and what, they, you know, what they'll say to a person who calls them up for an impromptu survey, let's just get into the raw numbers. There's been an outsized toll on the black community, the black population, post Roe v. Wade. In New York City, thousands more black babies are aborted than are born alive every year. The abortion rate among black mothers is more than three times higher than it is for white moms. And then a city health department, New York City Health Department report released in May shows that between 2012 and 2016, black moms terminated 136,426 pregnancies, only giving birth to 118,127 babies. By contrast, births far surpassed abortions among whites, Asians and Hispanics. So, you know, for those who are preparing to shoot me a quick note about how I'm pulling down the black community, I'm not. I'm sharing this information because knowledge is power. And when we know better, we're supposed to do better. Nationally, black women terminate pregnancies at far higher rates than other women as well. In 2014, 36% of all abortions were performed on black women who are just 13% of the female population. So 13% of all of the women in this country are black, but black women have 36% of all of the abortions. Other low-income ethnic minorities who experience discrimination, such as Hispanics, abort at, much, at rates much closer to white women than black women. The more plausible explanation may have to do with marriage. Unmarried women are more likely to experience an unintended pregnancy. Black women are less likely than their white, Asian, and Hispanic counterparts to marry. Many of the would-be partners are sitting in prison, but it's also true that the racial divide in marriage, which started in the 1960s and has grown ever since, predates the mass incarceration of black men that took off in the 1980s. So what are we saying? I, I'm, I, I know what Jason Riley is saying. What I'm saying is that this is a heart issue it's an issue for people to kind of, you have to make the decision for yourself that you're not going to get pregnant out of wedlock. There's, there are answers to this. It's, it's not like people are just magically waking up in the morning and they're pregnant. The other thing is you have to decide if you're going to be having intimate relations with a the person, then that person is going to be your husband. But it has to be that the person is your husband before you have the intimate relations. 
And that is so unpopular because what we've been sold is a bill of goods. It's liberating to be sexually active. It's liberating to give into your sexual urges. Just do whatever you want. Look at the proliferation of pornography in our country where most kids start watching pornography at the age of 12. Christian homes, non-Christian homes, inner city homes, suburban homes, all of our kids are inundated with images and content that tells them you're just an animal, just go have sex. And then if you get pregnant, Planned Parenthood's right here for you. They'll help you have an abortion. And so the parents are fighting that uphill battle, trying to keep their kids insulated from that while teaching them the proper form and function of intimacy between a man and a woman. Add on top of that, that we really have a party right now, the Democrats, who prioritize abortion over everything else. Notice they're not saying that Judge Kavanaugh, which he very well might be the deciding vote to strike down affirmative action, and it has been mentioned, he might be the deciding vote to strike down a number of different decisions that are currently moving their way through appellate courts that could possibly be heard and argued in front of the SCOTUS. They're not talking about that. All they're really focused on is what they call reproductive rights for women, which is the right to terminate a pregnancy that you don't want. They no longer argue that it's not a baby, it's a clump of cells, or that it doesn't stop a life. They're now just saying it's the woman's right to decide what is in her body. No one can impact that, not even the father of the unborn child, and that viability is not even an issue. So if the woman could have the baby early and have the baby put into you know, an ICU incubator type situation and basically taken care of until they were viable outside the incubator and adopted by a waiting couple who want a newborn baby, a pro-abortion leftist will even say that violates her rights because she shouldn't have to even be burdened with the idea that a child is living that's hers somewhere out in the world if she has the opportunity to simply terminate it and that's what she wants to do. It's a problem. It's just as wrong as when the Supreme Court said that Black people weren't people or that Jim Crow segregation was okay. These are things, thorny issues that go straight to the heart of the depravity of man. And what we're dealing with right now is a group of people in America who have a very large bully pulpit who want to convince you that there are no consequences for us continuing to allow abortion on demand to be the thing that we support with our tax dollars, the thing that people support with their mouths, the thing that people are willing to tell a survey person, I support that. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to support the pro-choice position. That may be what helps you get off to sleep at night, you know, your, your Ambien or your melatonin and that thought. But it won't stand up to the scrutiny that you'll receive at the judgment seat. So we've got to be clear. Abortion kills a life and it negatively impacts, basically destroys the life of the mother who has the abortion until they come to some place of regret and repentance and acceptance. And it's wrong. Whether or not it's the law of the land is immaterial. It was once the law of the land that I would be someone's property. That is no longer the law of the land. It was also once the law of the land that I couldn't own a gun or vote. That's no longer the law of the land. It could definitely be uh, fixed. It could definitely be fixed. But it has to start with a heart change within us. We can't just rely on the Supreme Court to make these kinds of moral judgments for us. More of us have to believe that it's wrong 
and know that it's wrong and be willing to say that it's wrong, even to our own detriment before we're able to get past this place where it's currently a tax-supported law of the land. So, you know, that there it is. Now, one more quick thing. I mentioned, and we'll probably delve into this a little bit more tomorrow, but I definitely wanted to give you guys just the high points. Asylum claims surging 800% despite a 30% drop in Central American murders and violence. Now, this is Paul Bedard, and he's writing, he's got, I'm just going to show the, the viewing people on the, this is, this is charts and graphs, which you guys know. It's my jam. I love me some charts and graphs. Central American asylum claims are up. They've surged over 800% despite a massive drop in murder and violence in the region. And this is according to Justice Department and United Nations statistics. So this is what supports the charge that immigrants are gaming the system, specifically immigrants from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Now, you know me. I say we deport all the folks who are here illegally, send them back to their home countries, and they start putting some of what they learned here into action in their home countries and make some improvements. And we send some troops and some money and some supplies and help those people set up and and start changing the places that they're coming from as opposed to trying to change our country into some socialist pit. That's my thing. Um, I'm not in charge. So you've got the rate's still high of murder in these Central American countries, but it's lower. It's actually the lowest since 2004. So the people who are coming over are not really running away from a Central American nightmare. They're running towards the American dream. But when they get here, they start pushing socialism, which is why they can't stay. Sorry. But we just need to keep our constitutional republic, our representative republic, and we need y'all to go back to your own social countries and make those into republics too, not the other way around. That's just the truth of it. That's just what it is. All right, that's the show for today. You guys, have a blessed night. Be back with you tomorrow. Good night. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.